When you listen to the testimonies of other Christians, do you sometimes marvel at the unique ways that Jesus reveals himself in grace? Well, today we are privileged to witness Jesus' eye-opening grace in a most marvelous incident in Mark's Gospel. If you're not already there by way of anticipation, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Please follow with me as I read the text we're going to be considering this morning. We're going to be considering the wider context of, of Mark 8, but our focus is going to be upon the healing of the blind man found in verses 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him, and entreated him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I'm seeing them like trees walking about. Then again he laid his hands upon his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Now this morning we're going to consider this marvelous miracle of Christ under Two headings by way of exposition and one by way of application. First of all, we're going to look at the instructive setting of the miracle. Then we're going to uh, look at the notable features of the miracle. And then we're going to consider several lessons from the miracle. So let us, first of all, look at the instructive setting of the miracle here in Mark 8. Now, brother, an important principle in maximizing our understanding and benefit from the reading of the Gospels is to know that the Gospel writers are not just historians, they're also theologians. They aren't simply relating events in the life of our Lord. They intend to teach us valuable lessons from those events. They recorded the events of Christ's life and ministry to further our knowledge of our Lord and of ourselves and of our salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ came to purchase and bestow and how we should live the Christian life. The events of this chapter give us a glimpse of the glory of Christ and the glory of Christ especially as a miraculous provider and healer as a patient teacher, as a suffering Savior, and as a coming judge. In doing so, these events underscore our need. Each one of us come here with a need. 
We have our daily need for sustenance and for Jesus' material provision. We come here with our native ignorance and our need for Jesus' instruction. We come here facing temptation to distraction by the world and our need for decisiveness in following Him if we would be found faithful at His return. And through the surrounding events, though these events are found in Matthew, only Mark records the unique miracle that is found here in verses 22 through 26. Now, I believe that Mark calls our attention to this miracle to teach valuable lessons about our spiritual blindness, not only as sinners before conversion, but also remaining blind spots that we have after our eyes are opened to see the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at the preceding events that set the stage for this miracle in verses 1 through 21. And we're not going to read, read over them. We're just going to look at the principles. And we're going to look at the succeeding events that confirmed the message of this miracle. So let us, as we consider the instructive setting of the miracle, the preceding events that set the stage for this miracle. The miraculous feedings of the 4,000 here and the 5,000 previously teach us to trust Jesus, who is able to provide for all of our needs, sometimes in ways not expected, and that He does so out of His own rich bounty. His supply is always greater than our need. Jesus' subsequent confrontation with the Pharisees and Herodians teach us that we need to seek no miracle to substantiate our faith in Christ. There are those today that are clamoring for miracles. I will not believe in Jesus unless I see something that is, is miraculous. Brethren, His miracles serve to demonstrate His divine identity and to corroborate His teaching. We must believe in Him and embrace His teaching if we would be saved. But miracles alone bring no one to faith. Many saw Jesus' miracles, and they didn't come to faith. In fact, many saw His miracles, and they attributed them to the work of Satan. Jesus never flatters idle curiosity by performing miracles. But He does reveal Himself to those who come to Him in faith. Our Lord's warning to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is unbelief and formalism, and of the Herodians, which is worldliness, I believe, underscores our liability to fall prey to false teaching and evil influences around us. The Pharisees and the Herodians are still here. They're not called that today, but we still have legalistic influences, formalistic influences to just come to God and go through the motions of worship. We also have worldliness that's around us, not just outside the church, but inside the church. Jesus wasn't concerned so much with the influences outside the church upon the apostles, but those things as they bleed their way inside of the church and corrupt the teaching 
and overthrow the faith of God's people. In this warning that he gives to them, in light of the influence of the scribes and the Pharisees, demonstrates our own shallow understanding of Jesus' word. We need repeated instruction in the same truths, because we, like they, are slow learners. We need line upon line, precept upon precept, a little here and a little there. <clears throat> so the preceding events set the stage for the miracle. <clears throat> and notice the succeeding events in verses 27 through 36 confirm the message of the miracle. Jesus' Jesus' vital question about his identity and saving mission demands of us a right and a decided response. It must be right. We must entertain no wrong views of our Lord's death, atonement, his resurrection, or of his justifying and sanctifying power, or of his soul saviorhood. If we fall prey to errors regarding these subjects, we have left the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. And these, <clears throat> these errors are all around us. We must be very wear, uh, wary of them. We, therefore, we need to know the Scriptures well. We need to understand what the Bible teaches so we will be able to see error presented in the name of Christ. And our response to Jesus must not only be right, it must be decided. It must not waver. We must not be driven and tossed by the wind. We must not be cast about by the winds of doctrine that are blowing all around us, away from the Lord Jesus. When challenged to embrace the faith-denying teaching of the Pharisees and the carnal seductions of the Herodians of this world, we must hold firmly by faith to our Lord and His unvarnished truth. We must ever be on the alert to distractions and diversions. We face them every day. This vile world is no friend to grace to help us on to God. And so we must be careful to avoid both legalistic and carnal Christianity. And sometimes the two go side by side and together. Otherwise we will abandon our Lord and we will be ashamed of Him. And if we are ashamed of Him during this life, He will be forever ashamed of us. Those are the words with which Jesus closes the 8th chapter of Mark. <coughs> Matthew Henry writes, Those who are ashamed of Christ in this world, where He is despised, He will be ashamed of in the world where He is eternally adored. They shall not share with Him in His glory then, that we're not willing to share with Him in His disgrace now. We must be willing to be reckoned fools for Christ. The off-scouring of the world. To be considered half crazy because we identify with Jesus Christ who's hated in this world. And if we're ashamed of him in this life, he will be ashamed of us at his coming. In fact, Jesus warns us from heaven 
In the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 8, but for the cowardly, and I think the cowardly there are referring to those who are ashamed of him, Jesus speaking of them here at the end of Mark chapter 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving, it's interesting how cowardliness and unbelief are put side by side. One is the effect of the other. They're probably both effects of each other. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. See, these are important issues, are they not? We must turn our attention to them. We must not be distracted, not only out in the world, we must not be distracted in here. We must hear the voice of Christ. So getting the gospel right and living it openly before men is of monumental importance. Brethren, if we fail to hold distinct views and decisive convictions, we place our eternal or we place our souls in eternal peril. So returning to the introduction to this miracle, consider Jesus' probing, piercing question in verse 21. It serves as an introduction to prepare us for this miracle. And he was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? Now we wouldn't necessarily see this in our English Bibles, but the New American Standard accurately translates the imperfect verb. He didn't just say it once. He was saying that to them probably in various ways. Do you not yet understand? He's teaching us that we must have clear and correct views of our Lord and His message if we're not to fail in the end. So that brings us from the instructive setting of the miracle, looking at what happened before and what happened after, to the notable features of the miracle in verses 22 through 26. Notice, first of all, that this miracle demonstrates the dreadful effects of blindness. Blindness was not uncommon in Palestine in Jesus' days, and even now. Many factors contribute to blindness. Unsanitary conditions as well as blowing sand and dust and the intense heat and glare of the sun. Also the contrast of the cool, moist air coming in from the Mediterranean. And to these factors may be added various eye diseases. Blind people in Jesus' day were often left to grope about in darkness. They were a very pitiable sight, making them very making them vulnerable to various dangers around them. The Old Testament law said you're not to put a stumbling block in front of a blind man. They were made sport of. They're still made sport of in the world. Dangers are all around them. They, They can't see. Many are robbed, beaten, left for dead. 
Many blind people were and still are in some places destitute. They're reduced to a life of begging. We don't see that in our country. We see able-bodied, sighted people, many of them who could work standing on street corners begging. In this situation, they couldn't work. They couldn't see. They couldn't do a job. Such was the case of this blind man. Friends brought him to the Lord Jesus. And it appears that this man wasn't born blind. The commentators may well be right in saying, because he knew what trees looked like, and he had some idea what people looked like, that maybe he had a disease that took his sight away sometime during his life. So that's the, the, the fact that the miracle de- demonstrates the dreadful effects of blindness. But brethren, much worse than physical blindness is spiritual blindness. We can see 2020 and not see things as we ought to see them. What a picture we have of our native blindness by sin. We're helpless, we're vulnerable, we're dependent. And it's this kind of people that Jesus came to save. Notice, secondly, that this miracle shows Jesus' concern for needy sinners. This miracle shows Jesus' concern for needy sinners. Notice, first of all, Jesus' concern is observable in the wideness of his ministry. Well, what do I mean by that? The wideness of his ministry. The Lord Jesus Christ was sent essentially and especially to seek and to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His ministry was confined predominantly to his Jewish countrymen. But he did travel into predominantly Gentile areas in Palestine, where he preached and performed miracles. Just previously to this, he came from Tyre and Sidon, where he ministered mercy to the Syrophoenician woman, by raising her daughter from a sick bed. He had just fed the 4,000 in the Gentile area of the Decapolis. So he came to seek and to save, not just lost sheep from the house of Israel, but to bring in other sheep among the heathen nations to have one shepherd. Now you say, I, I know this, Pastor Steve, but sometimes we forget. Bless God that he came to save Gentiles. I don't know anybody in this room that's of Jewish extraction. But he had mercy not only upon Jews, he had mercy upon Gentiles as well. And bless God that many of us are numbered among them. Otherwise we would be without hope and without God in this world. So where Jesus performed this miracle is significant. It happened in a town called Bethsaida. And apparently there were two Bethsaidas on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. There was one on the west side where Peter and Andrew and Philip lived. This interesting Bethsaida, Bethlehem means house of bread, Bethsaida means house of fish. These were fishing villages. The state of Galilee, as it says in John 12 and verse 21, was not far from Capernaum. It was on the western shore of the lake. 
This Bethsaida is not the one, I believe, mentioned here in Mark chapter 8. But this Bethsaida was located on the northeastern shore of the lake, not far from the entrance of the Jordan River from the north. According to historians, it has been rebuilt and enlarged by Philip the Tetrarch not long after the birth of Christ, and received the name of Julius in honor of Julia, the daughter of Augustus. So this is called Bethsaida Julius. It was located not far from the scene of the miraculous feeding that took place not long before this miracle. Now the practical point to be reinforced here is that Jesus is a cosmopolitan Savior. He came to seek and to save that which is lost from every tribe and kindred and people and nation. His compassion for sinners knows no geographical boundaries. He who pronounced his chief ministry to be among the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he had other sheep. He was going to bring them into one fold with one shepherd. His ministry to non-Jews, showing compassion to lost and needy sinners from all nations and, and among all people. Indeed, doesn't he love sinners from everywhere? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight as the little children's hymn goes. Indeed, it was the pattern set for the apostles, which they followed shortly afterward, and is still our model today. That's why we send missionaries into the far corners of the world. Jesus said the gospel is to be preached to every creature under heaven. And he was setting that example here by ministering in this Gentile town. Jesus' concern for needy sinners is also evident in the eagerness of his compassion. We often read about Jesus, he says, I feel compassion. That verb there means actually to be moved in your innards. It wasn't just something he thought in his mind, but he felt it in his body. He was moved to compassion. It wasn't just theoretical, it was, it was actual, it was physical. When Jesus opened the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue in Nazareth, he turned to the place that is found in Isaiah that reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he concluded, when he sat down, and he said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This word was about me. I am the one. For the man in Bethsaida, you see, the Lord's favorable year had come. Our loving Savior, as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, was moved with compassion at the sight of those who were bruised and broken by their sin. He healed men's physical maladies, applied, supplied their temporal needs, and especially did he minister to our spiritual sickness. And 
He hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Notice thirdly, Jesus' concern is displayed in the intimacy of his dealings. In the intimacy of his dealings. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, do you see anything? And we read in verse 25, then again he laid his hands upon his eyes. Jesus could have just spoken a word and this man could have had 20-20 eyesight. But notice how he deals with him. <coughs> he takes him by the hand and led him away from the clamoring crowd so that he might have a private audience with him. He wanted to be able to speak with him personally and privately away from all of the clang and the clamor. That's how the Lord Jesus deals with each one of us. Indeed, we might be in a large group. We could be in a church service and people are sitting around us. But it is as if Jesus comes and ministers to us where we are all by ourselves, as if he's giving all of his attention just to you or just to me. That's the way Jesus deals with us. And notice that it was a different hand that led him away than the hand that led him to Jesus. His hand was held in the grip of omnipotent grace. It wasn't the impotent hand of friends, but it was the almighty hand of grace and power. And so we should come to Christ. So we sang, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is able. He is willing, doubt no more. Now, I don't know where you are this morning. You may be sitting around other people that confess the faith of Christ. Maybe you don't. Jesus is speaking to you this morning. He's coming to take you by the hand, to lead you away from the crowd, to have gracious, personal, intimate dealings with you. The one who sees your soul is speaking to your heart, and he's saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is that you this morning? Well, I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you read your Bible at home. I'm asking, have you had a private audience with Jesus? Has he come and taken you by the hand? Has he spoken to your heart? Has he applied the, his saliva upon your eyes as he laid his hand upon you. Are you now seeing? Can you say, once I was blind, but now I see? Can you say that? 
Jesus' concern is displayed in the intimacy of his dealings with this man. Furthermore, his concern is exhibited in his unique healing. This is the only occasion in the Gospels where this miracle is mentioned. The surrounding circumstances are mentioned in Matthew, but not this unique ministry of healing by the Lord Jesus Christ. He healed various other people. Sometimes he did so with a touch. Sometimes he did so with a word. Sometimes he did so with a person present. Sometimes he spoke and he healed somebody far away. Sometimes he used means. Like the making of clay from saliva and, and anointing a man's eyes and then commanding him to go off and wash in a pool. At other times he put his fingers into the ears of the deaf. And so this was a very personal miracle here. In that sense, Jesus laid his hands upon this man, not once but twice. He actually spit saliva into the man's eyes. I didn't know this, but apparently in some countries in the Middle East, maybe even today, they believe that saliva, especially the saliva of a priest, had some kind of medicinal qualities to it. And of course, Jesus here is the chief priest. He can apply his saliva to men's eyes, and as the great physician, he can grant sight to blind eyes. And so he did. Brethren, we may suppose that Jesus' healing methods were always custom-tailored to the individual and to his situation. He didn't have cookie-cutter miracles that he always did the same way. No, he had special application of his grace through different means so that his miracle would maximize the benefit to the individual, what they, re what they needed. He supplied. So he did so also for the instruction of onlookers and also for the glory of God. Ninth of John, you have a man born blind. And the disciples had some strange questions about this man, why he was blind. You know, was it his parents that sinned? Was, was it he that sinned? You think about that. Was he that sinned? Is that why he was born blind? Well, we know they were conceived in sin. But Jesus said, no, no, no. You, you, your guys, you, you're foggy in your thinking. You're not seeing things clearly. God had this man born blind for this incident today. So that in my speaking to him and healing him and giving him eyes to see, that ultimately God may be glorified. And that, that's the great purpose in all miracles. But we're left to wonder, why did our Lord restore this man's sight in two stages? Why didn't he do it all at once? It may be he chose this method to draw out and strengthen this man's faith. Jesus' healings were always intended to encourage, encourage faith in him. Be it done according to your what? Your faith. 
was his word to two other blind men who received his healing touch. And for this reason, he always commended great faith. And it was interesting, it was always the great faith, not of Jews, but of Gentiles. The centurion. He marveled at the centurion, the Gentile military man's great faith. And he marveled at the faith of the Gentile, the Syrophoenician woman. Woman, your faith is great. Did Jesus heal this man's sight in stages to strengthen his faith? Maybe. But brethren, one thing we may be sure, Jesus knows best, and he always completes what he begins, because he is the author and finisher of our faith. This man's unique healing also reminds us that Jesus is sovereign. He is free to work when and how he wills. Matthew Henry observes, Jesus would not tie himself to a method, but would show with what liberty he acted in all he did. He did not cure by rote, as I may say, and in a road, we might say in a rut, but varied as he thought fit. Providence gains the same end in different ways that men may attend its motions with an implicit faith. Jesus does these things to draw out from us an implicit faith. We believe him. We believe what he says. No matter how dark the circumstances are, his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And I suggest that Jesus may have intended this man's two-stage healing as a teaching moment for the apostles. Jesus did what he did in grace, not only for the person that was involved in the healing, but also for those that are around watching. And remember who are watching this miracle most closely. It's Jesus' disciples. Remember the surrounding context. Because their faith was weak, their spiritual perception was dull. They needed to believe more firmly that they might see more clearly. Had they learned the lesson taught by Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, they wouldn't have balked at his ability to supply food for the 4,000 and also food for themselves. Had their spiritual perception been sharp, they would have understood their master's warning about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians to be about their evil influence, not because they had forgotten bread. That wasn't Jesus' point. They hear leaven, they think bread. He says leaven, they should think influence. But that's the way we often are. We hear the word of God and we don't understand what it means. We put a wrong construction on it. We put a very materialistic and temporal meaning upon it when it has a spiritual eternal meaning. And had their discernment been sharpened by the two-stage healing of the blind man, they would have not been so quick to balk when Jesus informed them of his upcoming suffering, death, and resurrection. And we know because of Peter's failure afterward. 
speaking on behalf of the apostles, Simon in one breath, correctly and boldly confessed Jesus' messianic identity. Thou art the Christ. And almost in the next breath, he blatantly rejected Jesus' messianic mission. Reading Peter's response to Jesus' question about his identity in light of this miracle that they had witnessed, it is apparent that the disciples were yet seeing men walking about as trees. Yes, you're the Christ, but you're not. This isn't going to happen to you. God forbid it, Lord. Aren't we often like that? We'll speak of Jesus as our Lord. And and what does that mean? That means submission to what he says. And then we turn around and we say, no, Lord. No and Lord should never go together, right? If he's our Lord, we should believe what he says implicitly and do what he says. So let's, let's be easy on Peter in the sense that we're often like him, are we not? You see, their faith needed to be strengthened so that their perception would in turn be sharpened so that they would not fall prey to the evil influences all around them, particularly here of the Pharisees and the Herodians. So the disciples needed their faith strengthened and in turn their discernment sharpened. The healing of this blind man in stages should have showed them that their spiritual sight was dim because their faith was weak. That if they're to make progress in following Christ, they needed to know him better so that they might trust him more implicitly and trusting him more implicitly that they would see things more clearly. I think that's a major message here in this miracle as it touches the disciples and us. And this, I believe, was the reason why Mark uses Jesus' pointed, probing question as a transition to introduce this miracle. He was saying to them, do you not yet understand? This burning question, it seems to me, provides the key to understanding the wider meaning of this miracle and its practical purpose. The blind man may or may not have needed his faith strengthened, but one thing is certain, the apostles surely did. One final thing, Jesus' post-op instruction to the man may also seem strange, sending him home while forbidding him to travel there through the town. He did the same thing to the two blind men in Matthew chapter 9. He said, don't say anything to the, uh, of this to anyone. What they did, they were not noised it abroad. It made it harder for Jesus to go from place to place. Well, we might wonder, why didn't Jesus urge the man to go through Bethsaida and tell others of his healing? Well, various reasons for Jesus' prohibition have been offered. All of them may be right to one degree or another. Perhaps Jesus wanted to prevent undue attention to his miracles. It would distract the people from his teaching. They'd be so focused upon what he did that they would forget what he said. He did what he did to gain a hearing for what he said, you see. Not the other way around. 
Jesus never catered to the carnally curious. Or maybe he wanted to keep large crowds from obstructing his movements and hindering his work. But another reason may come into play here. A reason arising from Jesus' concern for the man himself. Commenting upon the healing of this blind man and the healing of the two others in Matthew 9 that happened on a different occasion, William Taylor suggests that most probable of all, after looking at all these reasons, most probable of all, why did he prohibit him from going back in the town and speaking of his healing? The prohibition was rooted in his regard for the spiritual welfare of the man whom he had cured. Their constant rehearsal, speaking of this man and the others, their constant rehearsal of the kindness of the Lord to them might tend to create and foster in them a spirit of Pharisaism. It might lead them to think that they were better than others because he had done so much for them. They might tell the story for their own glory and not for his. And so their telling of it would become a serious danger to their spiritual life. And he, foreseeing that, forbade them to speak of it at all. Taylor goes on to say, It is not always wise to encourage a new convert to tell what Christ has done for him. And I'll just stop at this point. Because we've seen this before. Especially if a high-profile person confesses faith in Jesus Christ. He becomes a new Christian. He's a celebrity, right? And what happens? The church takes him and puts him on a conference tour so he can go around and tell everybody what's happened to him. That has spelled the spiritual death of many people. They're not if they were truly Christians at all, they weren't ready for that kind of exposure. It catered to their pride. It puffed them up. But we have this problem too. We can take, when our witness, our focus off of Jesus Christ and put it upon ourselves. He writes, It's not always wise to encourage a new convert to tell what Christ has done for him. Whether uh, it is or not depends very largely on the disposition of the convert himself. Of course, Jesus knew these men perfectly. It may be safe enough for some, and yet it may be very dangerous for others. I know indeed that great good has frequently resulted from the giving of personal testimonies by converts in some of our city missions and elsewhere. But such testimonies ought not to be indiscriminately stimulated and encouraged. And the moment any symptom of self-glorification appears, the speaker should be silenced. For if he proceeded, or proceed in that spirit, he will do no good to others, but great harm to himself. Rather than anything that the grace begins in us, rising sin can corrupt. And we need to know ourselves, especially here. If we're giving our, our testimony, is our focus upon ourselves? Or is our focus upon Jesus Christ? 
You see, our spiritual welfare is ever Jesus' concern. And so is God's glory. He bestows no blessing, but it should both humble and urge us to honor God and not ourselves. The same Jesus who stated that he came to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison also affirmed in the very next breath in Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will, give my, I will not give my glory to another. So we need to be very careful that we, in our witness, we're not seeking to glorify ourselves, make ourselves look good. Okay, what are some lessons we can learn from this? First of all, sin makes each one of us spiritually blind. Such is our dreadful condition before God opens our eyes in salvation. But brethren, our blindness is not merely neutral. It's positively evil. Paul speaks of our spiritual blindness in sin in very unflattering terms. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says that we are darkened in our understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us, because of the hardness of our heart, and we have become callous and have given ourselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That's not a, that's, that doesn't look very flattering on our resume, does it? But that's who we are by sinful nature. Spiritual blindness prevents us, as physical blindness did this man, from seeing things as they really are. We know things only materially, things that we can touch but cannot see spiritual realities. We are the natural men who do not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to us, and we cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We don't have the Spirit. We don't understand these things. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we regard the gospel as what? Foolishness. And like a blind man, we are also unaware of our danger. All kind of hazardous obstacles are in our way. We don't see them. We are blindly going through life, heading inexorably to a cliff over which we fall into a lake of fire. That's what we are as blind men. And like blind men, we are totally helpless. We cannot make ourselves see. And what is worse, we are utterly unconscious of our blindness. We think we see when we don't. And we think Christians that truly do see that they're blind. They don't see things at all. When in fact, we're the blind ones. Jesus warns those who think they see but are really blind 
If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? But unlike a blind person, we are to blame, we are to, to be blamed for our spiritual blindness. Our blindness is sin. Not just the result of sin, it is sin itself. Fact is, sin makes us content with our blindness. And what makes our situation so desperate is that, truth be told, we don't want to see. We're suicidal in our blindness. Secondly, Jesus is the only one who can open our spiritually blind eyes. We need the Lord to anoint our eyes with, with His grace so that we may truly see. May our own testimony echo that of the former blind slave ship captain. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, now I see. Let me ask you, do you doubt the ability of Christ to open your blind eyes? He is able. Do you doubt that He is willing? He's willing. Jesus purposely went to Bethsaida to give sight to the blind. And therefore, what's, what's the word for us? Go to him today. He is able. He is willing. He said, I can't get to him. And you're groping in your darkness. Say, Lord Jesus, give me eyes to see you. Give me faith to believe in you. I can't come to you. You've got to come to me. These men lead, led me to you. You must come and take my hand. You must open my eyes. I can't do it myself. Blind people can't make themselves see. Indeed, blind people lead other blind people into the ditch. I need your help. He is able, he is willing, therefore doubt no more. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Thirdly and finally, Jesus displays his sovereignty in how he opens spiritually blind eyes. Brethren, we must not expect the Lord to open the eyes of others just like He opened our own. We must not generalize our experience and place the requirements upon others as how Jesus worked with us. Saving faith is always the same, yes, but circumstances differ. Jesus opens our eyes, but not always in the same way. We all see the same kingdom of God. We all respond by grace through faith in Jesus, offered in the same gospel. It may be worded differently, but it's the same Jesus. The eyes of some are blasted open by the terrors of the law, while others are gently opened by the sweet influences of the gospel. Some, like the Philippian jailer, have their eyes opened in an emotional whirlwind. Others, like Lydia, as when the Lord is said to have opened her heart as if only by a whisper. Both happened in response to Paul's word, but both differed in their circumstances greatly from each other, but they both became Christians. Brethren, our Savior is as sovereign as He is gracious, as creative as He is powerful in opening our blind eyes. 
For by grace we are saved through faith in Jesus, who is ultimately and intimately acquainted with all of our ways. He is free to work when and how He will with each one of us. And as I noted in our introduction, the testimonies of brothers and sisters applying for membership wonderfully confirms the creativity of God's converting grace. That's why you delight to hear the same voice of Jesus reading it in other circumstances. And you say, wow, he is a powerful and a creative savior. He saved the likes of that person in the same way that he saved me. But differences are in the circumstances. Providence is different, but it's the same savior that drew himself to them as drew us to him. Brethren, however Christ may open our eyes, we will all in the end be singing the same song. The same song of praise to the Lamb. So the question that I leave with each one here this morning is this. Has Jesus opened your eyes? Are you still groping around in spiritual darkness, calling your darkness light? when you're tripping over everything and your sin is, make, is making all manner of trouble for you in your life? He came to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from prison. Let me encourage you, dear sinner friend, if you don't know Christ, if you're still walking around in your blindness, Appeal to him who will take you by the hand. He will give you sight. He will show you the kingdom of God. He will make you his own child. Today and forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we have to confess that are blind by nature, we're blind by choice. We need a new nature. We need one to open our eyes to see the kingdom of God. We thank you that you came into this world to seek and to save that which is lost. You came to open blind eyes and to fling open dungeons and flame them with light so that we might see Jesus Christ in all of his saving glory. If there's any here this morning that don't know the Lord, if they're locked in prisons of darkness, we pray that you would cause their dungeon to flame with light, that they would diffuse that quickening ray, they would rise today and follow you. And for those who have spiritual sight, but have blind spots as we all do. We pray that we might come to know our Savior more intimately, to see Him more clearly, to follow Him more faithfully, to love Him more fervently. Lord, You know all of our needs. And Jesus is the answer to every one of them. And so we pray that You administer Your mercy through Him this day. And we'll praise You in His name. Amen.